Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. I said, well, I think I found a brother. And we all laughed and you know how wonderful. And she said, oh, what's his name? And I said, David, David Anderson. And her face went bright red and she started to cry. And she said, you know him. You know him. He has been to your house for a party with me. When she was growing up, Liz Colenso had a feeling that something didn't quite fit. It was a feeling, a sort of emptiness that would follow her into her adulthood. I first met Liz sitting in the hair salon we both went to in Melbourne's Outer East. It still gives me shivers when I think of this meeting. Our hairdresser introduced us because Liz wanted to write a book about some pretty intense stuff in her life and I'd written some books and our hairdresser thought we could chat. 
When Liz mentioned some of the stuff she'd experienced, I almost prophetically knew what she was going to mention next. It's weird, I know, but it happened. I saved some links to old newspaper articles a while before I'd ever met Liz about a person back in the 1960s and 1970s, and then Liz mentioned the name of this person. This is a story of a woman's search for identity, and yes, in case you're wondering, there's also true crime involved. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims, and what happens next. For the purposes of this interview, Liz has decided to use the name she was born with. We mentioned a book later on in the interview. Liz has written the draft of her story, and it's been a true labour of love, especially a testament to the support of her late husband, Steve, who kept encouraging her to write, even when he was terminally ill. If there's anyone listening who could help her bring this book to life, please contact us via Facebook or our website. Well, yes, I agree. It is an extraordinary story. I had a lot of very strange things happen on my journey, but this was unbelievable. You were adopted at birth. Can you tell us a bit about what you know of your early few months? My adopted parents saw me at four days old and I was actually taken home from the hospital at 11 days old. My earliest memories are probably when I was three and my adopted parents had a general store at Tutkaruk. So I just, you know, knew that I lived by the beach and my pop and my auntie lived with us and that was just my life with my mum and dad. Then we moved to Box Hill when I was five because my mother wanted me to have a good primary education. Did you know that you had been adopted, Liz? No. Did you feel that there was something that wasn't quite fitting when you were growing up? Absolutely. Tell us about that. Well, my parents were different to everybody else's parents. I was I was raised an only child and my parents were very, very protective, particularly my dad, and very controlling. And I just had a couple of situations where I grew up with a, a family over the road and my friend Wendy that I played with a lot, whenever we had a fight, she used to say to me, Anyhow, you're adopted. And back then that was like saying, you know, something really bad to you. So I got offended and I went in and asked my parents what that meant. And they were really upset by that. But later on, when I was 18, I went to get my licence and my father didn't believe that I needed my birth certificate for my licence and he got very angry that, I was persistent and he took himself to the police station and found out that I did need it. And it was just very strange. And then the same thing when I got married, same sort of hoo-ha about it. And then when I had my first child, my parents didn't come to see me for five or six days, which was really unusual and really hurtful. You know, I start, everything started to sort of trigger And at the time, I was working for uh, lawyers in Greensboro and one of them was involved on the, the committee through the Law Institute to review the Freedom of Information Act and give people the right 
to find out their heritage. And he was he was one of the committee members that passed that law. And he said to me after that had happened, get your name down very quickly because there's going to be an influx. And that's exactly what happened. At this stage, did you know you had been adopted or do you just thought, I've got to find out? Yeah. What was the process to do that? Well, I just had to fill out forms and register. And so I did that. And then I sort of left it a bit. I'd sort of this is my journey. I'd do a bit and I'd put it back in the box and I'd do a bit and I'd put it back in the box because part of me didn't really want the answer. It was scary. So I didn't do anything with that for quite some time. Then my cousin, my adopted cousin, who I thought was my real cousin, who lived in Sydney, he used to do business in Melbourne and he came down to visit and do business and then he came to visit me one night and he could see that I was really sad and things weren't right. I was having troubles with my first marriage at the time and he said, you know, what seems to be the problem? I said, I am totally convinced I'm adopted and he just said, you are. And he had known most of his life and his father had made him promise, promise sincerely that he would never tell me. How did that feel? For him, he was devastated. He he's and he still is. But for me, I can remember it like it was last night. It was just unbelievable. And I sort of knew it, but to have it confirmed was like good grief. I can't believe this. The lies, lies, you know. And and on reflection, I think it's somebody's right to know when they're an adult, you know. So I was confronted with what to do about it. How old were you at the time when you actually had it confirmed by your cousin that you were in fact adopted? I think I was in my late 20s. And you had a family and you were, you know, living. I had a daughter, had a husband. I was married and had a home and worked and was living a pretty normal life at that stage. And were your parents, your adoptive parents, your parents, were they around still? Were you still close to them? Yes, yes, they were. I still saw them about once a week at that stage. And so um, some time passed after that and I had to process what I was going to do. I had um, another child and I lost that child. He was very ill when he was born. I I went eight months into the pregnancy and I was very, very upset after the loss of that child and I just thought I just wanted to get out of everything, you know. So I decided that I wanted to leave my husband. So I went over to my parents' house to tell them all my decisions. And so when I went in, it was a Saturday, and I, I said to my dad, you know, I'm here. He said, you never come Saturday. What's wrong? So in one mouthful, I said, you know, I've lost the baby. 
I'm going to leave my husband and I know I'm adopted. And he was watching TV and he didn't even take his eyes off the TV. He just said, you need to go and talk to your mother in the bedroom. So I did that. I went and talked to my mum and she just said that, you know, as far as dad was concerned, I was his daughter. End of story. He he didn't want mum to tell me. The other thing that happened was when I was 15, I caught tuberculosis and I was in hospital for five months and I wasn't allowed to see my parents for five months. And when I got out of hospital, wasn't the right time to tell me because, you know, I'd sort of been in solitude really for that time. And so my mother did say that the doctors said to her that I was too highly strung to have a shock like that. And it wasn't just the fact that you had been adopted Mm. and obviously you're going to start the process to find out who your birth parents Mm. were. But then there was quite another shock, wasn't there? So Mm. tell us about how you came to find out who your birth mother was. Okay. So I did proceed to get my papers like the lawyer had arranged and so I made an appointment. So for their next group session, I went into South Melbourne and my husband drove me in to South Melbourne because but you're not allowed to have any other person with you when you go in. Steve was your second husband mm. and I say was because sadly Steve passed away mm. last year. Mm. You'd separated from your first husband and then met Steve and you're now in a very happy marriage and Mm. have you had your child with Steve by this stage? I had one that I lost and, yeah, I did have Christopher, yes, yes, yes. And I went up to this room, large room, which would have had about 30 people in that room. There were people who had relinquished their child or there were people trying to find their child. There were children trying to find their parents and they had just general counselling from a social worker and then probably about, I don't know, 15 minutes into that, we were all handed our files and just, you know, this big manila file came around with all kinds of documents in it, but the first page was your name, your birth name. So I opened up my page and there it said Elizabeth Dawn Colenso. And I felt like saying this can't be right. Where has Elizabeth Dawn Colenso come from? It was like this is another person, this is another identity, you know. It was very, very confusing. And um, so I had a brief look through the other paperwork and looked through it for about 10 minutes and then we were allowed to go unless we had any questions. So I went downstairs and Steve was waiting and so I would burst into tears and so we went and had a drink at a hotel on the way home. I was just needed to calm down before I saw the family and I was devastated. I just couldn't believe. Who is Colenso? I've never heard of a surname 
Colenso, and I used to work for eight barristers and I've never heard of a name Colenso. So we went home and started to sort of look in the phone books to see if there's any other Colensos and there were a couple in my area. So sort of just, you know, again, mulled around, put it back in the box a bit, just another shock for probably a couple of months. And then the department rang me and told me I have a sister. Another one of those moments came along and they said, you know, would I like to meet her? She's got a family. She lives on the Mornington Peninsula. And I said, oh, okay. So we we spoke on the phone uh, for a long, long time and we both decided that we would get a get a death certificate and see if our mother is still alive, so apply for a death certificate. And it came back that she had died at Ararat Jail in the criminally insane section. And we also discovered that we had a brother and that he lived five minutes from where I was living. And so... Again, I sort of thought, oh, my God, I can't do this. So a girlfriend of mine that I used to work with in the legal, in the legal office, she and I used to travel to work together and then she lost her husband and she decided to go back to England to sort of recover and then she came back and we caught up for lunch and there was another worker there and she said to me, oh, well, what's been happening, you know? And I said, well, I think I found a brother. And we all laughed and you know how wonderful. And she said, oh, what's his name? And I said, David. And she said, David what? I said, David Anderson. And where does he live? And I said, he lives in Baronia. And her face went bright red and she started to cry and she said, what do you mean? And I said, what's wrong? And she and she said, you know him. You know him. You have been, he has been to your house for a party with me. He, you and him used to come to my house and for working bees when my husband was ill. You know him well. And I said, it can't be possible. And she said, you do. And then she asked me, the birth name, and I told her Colenso, and she said, I, I can't possibly say anything yet to David. I need to check with his wife that the, the birth name was Colenso. So she went straight there and she did, and it was Colenso. So that night we went around to David's house and we reintroduced ourselves and so you've found out you've got a brother and a sister, but also that your birth mother had died in a hospital for the criminally insane. So that obviously set off some thoughts in your head. Massive. So when you met David, what happened? When I met David, he was just a really lovely man and he had a huge story to tell me. And he was very nervous. He asked me if I wanted to hear about it. But obviously I said to him, there's got to be a story 
about where she died and why she died there. And for my sister and I, we were both really worried about the mental health implications because, you know, we didn't know if it would come to us later or if any of our children would have it. And so we were more interested from that perspective. But David said it's a really hard story to tell, but if you want to hear it, I'll tell you. So he proceeded to tell me that my birth mother, whose name was Norma Pinker at this stage, she was married to a man called Thomas Pinker, and she she had been raised in a very abusive home. She was chronically abused by her father all her life and that she became an abuser. She abused David when he was growing up and just through sheer frustration, she David told me that he, the grandfather had thrown her as a baby across the room many times. So goodness knows what damage he did. And that she was, she was married to David's father and they both drank a lot and this night there was terrible argument and she ended up stabbing him and killing him. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was just so overwhelming. I was just cold and hot and, I mean, I had been raised in a middle-class good area. I had been a good school. I had never had any any implications with the police except when I got my licence and I couldn't believe that this was happening. So, but it does get worse because she did go to court and she was found guilty of murder, but she did um, apply to be charged only of manslaughter because the husband came at her, they were having an argument and he picked up a chair with steel legs and he raced towards her as if he was going to try and stab her with these legs. And he then put it down and he then went in and had a shower to try and calm down. And while he was in there, she went in the kitchen and she got a knife to protect herself in case he did it when he came out. And he did do it when he came out. So when he came for her... She stabbed him and killed him and he came out nude. So when he collapsed, he was in nude in a pool of blood and David was in the room when that all happened, hiding under a blanket. That's just devastating. And was this the first time and then? Yeah, then there's more. After the break, Liz tells us about what she discovered about her birth mother Norma's sad and difficult life. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. 
Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Norma's, she was actually found not guilty, wasn't she? Of murder. Of murder. But she was found guilty of manslaughter. She, she did 10 years. Okay, so Norma's killed her husband. She's found guilty of manslaughter. How old was David when this happened? 15. And so Norma goes to jail for, you know, she gets a fair sentence and it was in the newspapers. There's the old newspaper articles. Yes. And what happens to David? David, first of all, when the police came, they arranged for a car to take him to his nan's and he stayed with her for a little bit and then he went to an, an auntie's house for a little while and then when it was all sorted out amongst the family, he went to live with Norma's sister in Adelaide. So Norma does her jail time mm-hmm. and this must be an incredible shock to be hearing this. Then what happens when Norma gets out of jail that you discover because there's obviously, as you said, more to the story that David tells you? Yes. So when she gets out, actually I'll just backtrack, while she was in jail, she was very difficult. She fought with many, many prisoners because she just wouldn't take rubbish from them and they picked on her. By that stage she had put on a lot of weight. She was very obese. She didn't do anything about her personal health and her personal hygiene and so she smelt, so she fought all the time. So they didn't know where to put her because she caused trouble wherever she went. So finally she ended up her time in jail in Fairley. So then she got out and the workers found her accommodation in a house in Warrenwood, a share house, and in that house was a man called Richard Abson. And they set up a relationship And again, it was abusive. Again, it was driven by alcohol. But he was a really chronic alcoholic. If he would drink in the morning and if he had no money and he hasn't any more alcohol in the house, he would drink methylated spirits. And when he would drink that, it would make him go particularly violent, really terrible. So she was with him going up for about 10 years and um, during that time there was a lot of abuse but there was a lot of emotional abuse about he knew that she really loved her son and he he used to be really rude about David to her and pick on him, you know, and and be just really nasty about him and it upset her really badly and she she got really upset with that so one morning he was doing that 
and he went to sleep sort of mid-morning. So she went to the shed and she got a mash hammer and she bashed him to death. And this was in the 1970s, so she's got out of jail. And so I know the newspaper headlines obviously Mm. referred to the fact that this was not the first time that Norma had Mm. murdered someone close to her. And it was quite it was quite a big story, wasn't it? What? Oh, yeah, front page. Yeah, it was the front page of the Sun Pictorial, yeah. and you've showed me that front page, mm-hmm. and it's actually an incredibly haunting image. What mm-hmm. What does Norma look like in that photo? Well, she looks fearsome to me. She's a wretched looking woman. She's um, huge, really huge. Obviously, she hasn't done anything with her hair or face in her conditions, so that looked gaunt and sad and she looked like an abused woman. I say that because I've worked with abused women and um, she just had like a gathered skirt, cotton gathered skirt and a cardigan that was too small and just flat shoes and just her shoulders were slumped as she was just walking out of the court just, you know, a defeated-looking woman. Um, yeah, it was, it's it's a really sad, for me it's a sad picture. It's not really a, a fearsome. If I saw her coming towards me, I wouldn't think, oh, my goodness, I'm scared of her. It's just a really sad picture to me, very sad. What did the courts find? Well, they they found that she was guilty of that. Um, and because after she did that, she actually ran onto the road and tried to kill herself. And the first car that she ran in front of her avoided her, but then she ran in front of a truck that hit her and she did suffer injuries, but nothing that would kill her or maim her, but she was taken to a hospital and then she was, um, she was, you know, the police came and they, they put her in in jail straight from there. And same procedure really, except that, um, again, the behaviour in jail was terrible. So the jail authorities thought that maybe they should be having her assessed from a psychological point of view. And so she did go up to Ararat at that point and she was she had a psychiatric report and a psychologist report and they felt that she had personality disorder plus all of the abuse that she'd had all her life has build up of not being able to cope socially anywhere that she always felt like people were talking about her or attacked you know so they did a whole lot of reports i think at ararat they looked after her quite well they put her in an area where she wasn't confronted all the time by other prisoners. And then she completed her time, but then she wanted to go back to Ararat. And so she was she went there not as a prisoner, but as a mental health patient. And so she was able to have a few special things like walk in the garden and do some handcraft and, you know, be spoken to by staff and that sort of thing. So 
she ended up dying at that shortly after there. And she wasn't terribly old, was she? 69. From the reports, what did you know of Norma's health? Because it, it paints a picture, doesn't it, of what happens when you grow up abused, you're in mm. abusive relationships, you're an alcoholic. What were some of the health issues she had? Oh, she had terrible health. She had a chronic heart condition. She had arthritis, very bad arthritis, osteoarthritis. She had problems with her leg that she she had in the truck hitter. She had asthma and bronchitis. It was very cold up there, so, you know, that aggravated that. And then she had her mental health condition. Mm. You've done quite a lot of different jobs. You mentioned you work in the legal area, you've run businesses, but you've also done a lot of years of work with women who are in domestic violence situations. Mm. Were you doing that before you discovered anything about Norma? I was. What kind of things did you learn from that that I guess helped you to maybe understand more about what Norma would have gone through? I learned a lot in there that at the refuge. When I first started working there, I wasn't qualified. I just actually got the job through a friend of mine. And then my manager just threw me into lots of training. And back then, sadly, you didn't have to be qualified to be a family violence worker. But the main thing they they employed me for was my legal experience. And I'd been in, I'd worked for lawyers for many years and I'd been to court many times and used to work for barristers. Meeting the older women, you know, was very sad. And many older women had been perpetrated against by their children, sons in particular, physically. I can remember two women that I worked with where they were nearly killed. They were really badly injured when they came to us. But it just, You know, that was different to how it was for Norma. I had never worked with anybody who had actually killed anybody. I had worked with some very tough women, hard women, who didn't really take, they didn't accept a worker, a social worker as such. They sort of thought, what would you know? You're young, you don't know about my life or anything. But after sitting down and listening to their stories, I started to learn a lot and their stories were just so terrible. And we've spoken sometimes with guests about the notion of intergenerational trauma. What Mm. do you, you've done a lot of research and you've also got your own experience. What do you think about that? And particularly also the impact of being adopted? Mm. Well, it was sort of a bit of a collision course because, as I said, I had this safe middle-upper class sort of lifestyle. Even when I was married, you know, I still felt safe and I didn't mix in circles where there was violence. All my friends were, you know, happy. I suppose it's a bit sheltered. I, I relate to it. It's like very middle class yeah, suburban, isn't it? it? Is. Yeah. yeah. And in terms of it being intergenerational, so can you sort of catch it? I would say yes, definitely. Even such a thing as if you yell really, if a man yells at you really bad close to your face, that is really fearful that you make 
it's an abuse. You feel violated by that. And especially if a child is yelled at by a large mother or father really loud, it is terrifying for a child. So that child will grow up. And I I worked after I was women's worker, I was working with children and the children, I used to counsel them and they used to come in and say they hated their father, hated their father. And when he yelled at them, they were really scared what was going to happen. And so it's a whole process that happens when someone feels unsafe. So you, you really stop thinking you love with that person. How could you care for him? So then you start to think, well, how can I protect myself? And so there's lots of things that happen in a family like that. And I think when you grow up, when those families grow up, those those traits grow up with them. And many times where people have done these terrible crimes, when you read the history, they have been in abusive childhood, you know, as they were growing up and they did go out and fend for themselves and look for themselves and those traits go on and on. You remain quite close with David. He did pass away, mm. but you you formed a really strong relationship with him. Do you want to tell us a bit about mm. how that came to be? Well, I think David's the most amazing man I've ever met in my life, apart from my husband. What he went through and what I've just said in terms of, you know, when you're raised in violence, you do perpetrate violence. That didn't happen for David. Norma used to, she used to lock him in cupboards and say, you're not going to school today. Or she used to try and smother him with a pillow. Or she hit him. Or she intimidated him and screamed at him. And he's told me all of the stories about her as a child. So he, then he, when he went to live in South Australia and he lived in peace and happiness, my two aunties looked after him. And he came back to Victoria and ended up getting married and he took up a job and a good job and then he, that was with the SEC, which is which closed down, so then he got another job. And in his care, when he told me about my mother and his empathy with how I would feel about that, was so understanding and so calm and for him to be relaying that story about his mother, I I don't know how he did that. And so to, to sort of answer your question, I'm very proud of David. He didn't enjoy good health, which is often the case after someone suffered violence, their health breaks down. He married a wonderful woman who really was the turning point for him and her family took him sort of in as part of their family. So that was really wonderful and he was really so helpful to me and so understanding. He said, you know, if this is too much, tell me to back off and I will. I will say that his wife has said that when he found out that he had family, he was just so excited just so excited that he had siblings. So that was really nice to know. 
Did Norma ever have any other children besides David that actually lived in her care? No. But she had did have a number of... She um, had nine pregnancies and five survived. She had my sister first, then she had me. Then I think she lost one. Then she had the brother, David, and then she had another boy that the department have contacted, but he doesn't want to know anything about it, which is wise. Um, And the rest died. Did you ever find out who your biological father was? No. On my birth certificate says no father. It was back in post-war. You know, I was born in 1948, so back in the time where a lot of soldiers were coming to Melbourne and sailors and they'd meet at the hotels in Melbourne and the girls would go down and they'd all have a lovely time. And I think this is just, I haven't found any proof of this, but my imagination says that she would have gone there and, you know, somebody would have came up and put their arms around her and said she looked beautiful. She was quite attractive in her young years. And next thing you know, oh, thank you for saying I'm beautiful and they're off, you know, like it's it happens and, and it happens even today. Everybody wants love and warmth and to be, you know, feeling close to somebody. You mentioned that you had some fears about discovering about Norma and they were sort of realised in a way because it was such an extreme story. But in the book, you've done a lot of work around the experience of being adopted and also discovering that you are adopted. So how has that thread gone through your life? Abandonment. That's one of my biggest mental health issues. I um, I suffer from it very badly as a as a young child, I was raised an only child. Like I said, my father was controlling, so I couldn't go hanging in the street with my girlfriend. So I spent a lot of time on my own in an adult world. Then you know, when I think when my my life hit the biggest crisis point of when my first marriage broke up and I'd lost a child and all those things, I found out I was adopted. I I felt really lonely because my first husband didn't really know what to do about it. He just said, oh, we'll go to the office of titles and we'll find out who everyone is. Well, good on you, you know. It's not quite what I need. But I felt really, really lonely. And apart from my cousin, I wouldn't have had anybody else to turn to. I actually went and stayed with him for three weeks with his wife. But to this day, I've been up several times whenever when I've lost the plot and I go up to Sydney and stay with him because they really bring me back to ground and I feel safe with them. I think it is a thing of safety as well because if you feel lonely, you don't feel safe. In terms of being a mother myself, I, it makes me work very hard at making sure my children do feel loved, that I'm there for any problem that they may have. Steve and I blended a family, so we have four children between us. So there's been some hurdles with that. But, you know, at this point and probably 
10 years ago, it all came together beautifully. But even now, and especially with the loss of my husband, I'm again battling abandonment. And I probably will for the rest of my life now because he was he was my rock through all this. And I've got lots of really wonderful friends, but um, it is really, really hard to be an adopted person. And it does have, I've done some research, as you say, but probably the, the image for me that I, I've, if I stop to think about it is um, when Norma would have been in Royal Melbourne Hospital having me, and I guess Grandma Ivy would have been there too, and the nurse would have been, come on, Norma, push, and I would have been born and they wrapped me up taken her straight, taken me straight off my mother, no contact as there is now, wrapped me up and put me in the cradle that said baby Colenso. And that would have been it. The nurses would have looked after me. And then my adoptive parents would have came and seen me and said, oh, she's a beautiful baby, we'll take her. And in a week's time they came and they took me. And that's... It's like going into the dog kennel and adopting a dog. That's how it feels to me. I feel um, I I will never get that picture out of my mind. Why did you want to write a book? A lot of people said to me, you should write a book. (laughs) I think it was cathartic for me to write. I wanted to form a relationship with Norma, and I know that sounds weird, but I can honestly say I have. And David, um, he such a wonderful man. When she died, he, he used to go and see her once a month in jail. And when she died, they decided to get a gravestone, $6,000, black marble with gold writing, and they had to pay it off. And anyway, I decided I wanted to find a grave and she's buried at Ararat Cemetery and David's wife Janine told me where it was and and we found it and it was placed at the end of the row on the road in a really good position. It wasn't tucked away like she's in disgrace. It's a prominent plot and with the lovely headstone and it was a sunny day and oh, it was such an emotional day. It was like I met her and I just laid on top of the grave and cried and um, I took her some flowers and it was like there was a connection. I know that sounds weird. It sounds really weird. But it was like finally I have found you. You know, I I don't think I could have rested if somebody had said, well, we don't know where she's buried. You know, I had all these stories about her, but I didn't know where she was and it made perfect sense that she was buried at Ararat and David did a wonderful job with that. And so I, I, feel, um, I feel I've done the right thing. I feel I've, I've, um, I've told the world about her story and how hard it was for her and really why she murdered two men brought to light 
domestic violence and how it ruins a world, brought to light how hard it is for adopted people, and brought to light about how terrible it is to be in jail and when you're not quite right, how terrible it is to be not quite right. Thanks to our guest today, Liz Colenso. If there's something you've heard in the podcast that's affected you, there's some places you can contact for support. These details are also in our show notes. For confidential information, counselling and support service for family violence, call 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732. Lifeline 131 114. Men's Referral Service 1300 766 491. The website of the Victorian Adoption Network for information and self-help, also known as Vanish, has lots of information and links to other similar support organisations around Australia for people who have been adopted. www.vanish.org.au Thank you for downloading Australian True Crime, made in association with the ACAST Creator Network. We'll be back next week. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. 
They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.